0: How it's changed over the years, too, is especially sure. because, I mean, like even you just referencing, you're not afraid to use the word voucher, whereas for some people, it's very much a dirty word that...
1: What's well, funny, people have done polling and all this. It's, it's fascinating. Um, yeah. Yes, you're correct. It has become a dirty word. Hello, and
0: welcome to the Idaho Reports podcast for March 1st, 2023. I'm Logan Finney. On Monday of this week, the Idaho Senate, following lengthy debate, rejected a high-profile education savings account proposal on a 12 to 23 vote. That bill, co-sponsored by Senator Tammy Nichols and Senator Brian Linney, would have created education savings accounts, or ESAs, that allow students to access taxpayer dollars for private and homeschooling options. With that bill now dead on the Senate floor, the question becomes, what other ESA proposals are coming down the pipeline? I spoke last week with CEO Terry Ryan from the charter school nonprofit Bloom to discuss the issues he saw with the original proposal, what lessons he's learned after more than a decade in the school choice arena, and what considerations lawmakers should have in mind as they draft their new ESA legislation.
1: Terry, thanks for joining us. Logan, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for the invitation,
0: I appreciate it. Uh, so for listeners who aren't necessarily familiar with your organization and what you
1: do, can you tell me about Bloom and the work you're involved with? Sure, Bloom, as you said, it's a nonprofit. It was set up uh, in 2015 to help grow public charter schools in Idaho. Um, the uh, J.A. and Katherine Albertson's Family Foundation uh, recruited me out here and they had a vision of 20,000 new school seats in 10 years. And the mechanism that was available to us to really get that um, rolling was public charter schools. We have a pretty good charter school law in Idaho. And so public charter schools are public schools, they have a performance agreement usually with um, the Idaho Poet Charter School Commission, but are some are with um, school districts, and it allows them to be flexible in how they serve their students. That is, they can hire um, teachers in different ways than traditional districts can. They have shorter contracts. Um, they can be flexible in the types of teachers that they hire. Um, same with um, principals. Certification rules are different, uh, and they can have longer days and different schedules. And some some a creativity in the use of money, but not that much. And they are public schools and they're held accountable. Their data is made public and they have performance reports. So people know what's going on in those schools. Well, in the last seven to eight years, we've um, helped to create about 10,000 new school seats. Um, and that's a mixture. It's about $63 million of investment has been made in those seats, a mixture of philanthropic support. Um, a lot of it is the Albertsons Family Foundation, but also other philanthropists in Idaho and outside of Idaho. And then in 2018, we received a federal charter school program grant of $22 million. And that's, that's also gone into the creation of new school seats. Uh, So most of this work has focused on charter schools all over the state. I mean, we've got rural schools in places like Rathdrum and in Island Park. We have schools um, all along the Snake River Valley, obviously, where there's more people, you're going to have more schools. It's been a good thing for the state of Idaho because these schools are performing well, but our state has been growing fast and we've needed new school seats. So it hasn't been that controversial in that you're like, when I was in Ohio, every time you open a charter school, it was literally a zero-sum game with the Boise, or I'm sorry, the Dayton School District or the Columbus City School District. And that if they lost 500, 600 kids to a public charter school, that was five or 600 kids less than they had the year before. Here it's been kind of, West Ada, for example, just can't build buildings fast enough. And so if we can help build two or three schools over two or three years of time, that's two or three less that they have to build. Uh, and if you do it well, where you're bringing in good educators, bringing in innovative models, it's really a win-win. And I, Idaho has kind of seen it that way. It's really interesting to be in a state where people like their charter schools and yeah. respect them.
0: It, it seems like a lot of the focus you work on is, has to do with capacity, has to do yes. with those seats. Is that the main issue that Bloom was started up focusing on?
1: Yeah, so it's supply and demand, right? I mean, so we've been doing a lot of work in the supply side of things. The, the demand is absolutely there. As we've um, helped uh, a, a collection of great um, educational innovators open schools, uh, they fill up pretty quickly and end up having wait lists. So there's definitely demand for um, new forms of uh, education. And the mechanism that we've been using is the public charter school mechanism. And yeah, we spend a whole lot of time worrying about things like how do you afford buildings? Where do you find land that you can actually uh, make work? Because you're not getting a lot of money as a public charter school. You're operating at about $8,500 a kid on average. Uh, and uh, in that you have to pay um, for your facility costs, for your teachers, for everything that goes into it. So, we help with the startup costs and ideas that in year four, year five, the schools are solid, they're strong, they go on, they're public schools. You don't have to give them any more support or resources. Now, we stay connected and have a lot of things that we do together. Uh, but yeah, it's been primarily a public charter school strategy um, that we've been utilizing in Idaho because that's what the law has allowed and enabled us to use. Right. That gets us to
0: the law and to legislation. There's been a big push, school choice type push Uh, for ESAs, for education savings accounts. Uh, What do you and your organization think of that bill and the framework it's trying to set up? So,
1: House Bill 1038. Senate 1038, I'm sorry, thank you, SB 1038, appreciate that. Um, So, you know, it's interesting, because I've been at this so long, and I don't want to say I'm becoming a fuddy-duddy, but I do believe that if you take public dollars there is a responsibility to report how the students do with that money. Um, I mentioned to you what we're doing with philanthropic support. Well, it's not like the money just goes out and then they open schools and you wish them well. You actually track how are the students doing? in those schools, not only using state data, but we're really also interested in using things like NWA map data, it's a nationally normed assessment and tracking and seeing how our students do. We wanna do that because one, we wanna know the overall impact of the investment. Is it having a positive effect on students' abilities to read, do mathematics, um, things that matter to us? Uh, And what are we seeing? Are there different models that do better in terms of the performance of their students? Uh, Do classical instructional models do better than more progressive models, uh, STEM models. I mean, there's interesting sort of ideas within um, these these, uh, schools as well to see what really does work. Uh, And then I think, um, and I believe it's important for parents to have a sense of what's working, not just what, you know, you might have a philosophical attachment to, but is it actually adding value to your student um, in terms of how they're performing uh, on things, like I say, math and, and reading, that sort of thing. Um, So, most of the programs that have been about expanding choice along the lines of the education savings account here, uh, in the early days, and I go back to those, uh, we talked about voucher programs. So, in Ohio, uh, where um, one of the first sort of large-scale programs like this, it was a voucher program. It was targeted to neediest kids, so the neediest kids in places like Cleveland that were in a demonstrably failing school. Um, this was seen as a this was seen as a ticket out of a bad situation and hopefully into a better situation. Um, the early voucher programs focused on needy students, It also focused on students with special needs. So there were um, specific uh, programs targeted to special ed students, um, and yeah, they were called vouchers at the time. Uh, you know that that goes back to the very beginnings of the idea around um, uh, using. Um, public dollars to support private school choice but in time um, the opponents of 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 uh, these sorts of things really um, did a good job of, of soiling the term voucher. Uh, and so we've moved into the new realm where people talk about education savings accounts, and they are also different and that it's not just about um, being able to use a certain amount of money to send your child to a private school, Catholic school, parochial school. Um, you can also use the money to um, Kind of create uh, your own educational opportunities at home. Maybe you can save some of the money and use it in um, higher ed and that sort of thing. Sure. Uh, but the idea of a voucher is kind of the it's like a certificate that the government gives you that says, Exchange for a seat in a school. Exactly. You never see the money, but you're exactly right. Uh, and now the education savings accounts, and I'd say in a way, it's a better fit to the realities of our time where there's a lot more things you can do online. You could put together Khan Academy part day, maybe part day in a private school. I mean, it, it does create a lot of, of opportunities, and and I support that. The idea of innovation, the idea of, of empowering parents to come up with some different ways to educate their students, um, I think has a whole lot of merit, and I think that you see parents want this. Um, where I'm a little different to what the current legislation reads, I think there should be some evidence of success Uh, so if you're using these dollars, um, what are the results? Uh, we should have a performance, you know, again, we could use, um, NWA map results or other nationally normed results. I think it's appropriate to every three years have some sort of report on the program that the state, um, department or the state board or the treasurer's office, someone should be tasked with in reporting. Okay. So how much money has gone out? how's it being used is it where's it being used what do we know about the effectiveness of where it's being used uh, and I think, and most good private schools already do this. But they, if they're not, they should um, have a have some sort of certification process every five years, where you have a third party reviewer come in and report on how the school's doing. Um, you know, give the basic backgrounds of the schools. There's, there's groups like this across the country that do this. Sure, and for like a public charter school here in Idaho, you yeah, do the public exactly Charters right. Commission yeah Exactly. And I think the reason the public charter schools in Idaho overall, we've look. It, it's a bell curve. We've got some outstanding schools, we've got a bunch of really good schools, and we've got some troubled schools. Um, and you're gonna have that in any, and that's another reason, though, to have things like uh, evidence of success. You want to know because the reality is not every human being is going to be successful in every endeavor. And I don't want to have children suffering in a place if it's not working for them. Um, and it's not just good enough to say, uh, you know, I believe in trust, but verify. I'm that old. I remember mean, Ronald Reagan. Um, but trust, but verify. I trust that you're going to do a good job. But I want to verify um, through the use of things like assessments. And I'm not talking about overwhelming the, the private sector. Frankly, I think the charters have more accountability than they probably need, but that's the trade-off that we've made. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, we live with it. Uh, I don't think you want to apply the same level on private schools, but you definitely want something. And um, Senate Bill uh, 1038 doesn't have anything when it comes to sort of um, third-party uh processes that get at, are the kids actually learning? Um, how are things going? Uh, and then reporting also the, the lessons to learn from them. I'm sure some really neat stuff's gonna emerge out of this too, as you start freeing people up to do some um, innovative things, what well, we should all know about that and learn from that as well. Sure, have good examples to go up in the future. Um, so Senate Bill 1038
0: specifically doesn't give the state any sort of oversight over these private or et cetera programs it's setting up. Um, we've kind of heard hints from some of the legislative leadership that there are other ESA bills uh, kind of lined up ready to come if 1038 doesn't make it across the finish line. What sort of accountability measures or other sort of adjustments would you like seen in a future bill that maybe wasn't 1038?
1: So I think um, I was going back and digging around and trying to remind myself of the different things that have been going on. I mean, there have been bills that have come through in this, in this state as well. In 2019, there was one. And I wanted to remind myself, so what was in there? Um, and it is about the, some form of public reporting of assessment results. Uh, you know, I talked about nationally normed assessments with results being made public. Um, So you could have the cohort, let's say there's 6,600 students that are um, in effect receiving these resources. Well, let's have a report on how the, those students are actually doing academically. Um, and it would be nice to know how are they doing academically in comparison to um, charter school students, in comparison to traditional public school students. I mean, we hear a lot about, you know, um, only 40% of our kids are proficient in the IRI and these things. Um, well, it'd be disappointing if we created a program that let's say only 20% of the kids are proficient in the IRI. Um, I think we should at least try to know something about that and um, uh, what, what is it that the students are actually able to do performance wise as a result of how these tax dollars are spent? We talked about it,'ll say it again. I mean some some form of program impact study. Uh, and these are things that we do in the charter space. Um, mm-hmm. Just uh, last week, we had a national research team from Stanford's Credo come out and demonstrate, okay, how are the charter school students doing? They have a really sophisticated um, data analysis. And, and long and short of it is, is that our rural charter school students are benefiting big time. Um, our charter students that are in more suburban schools are benefiting big time. Our um, uh, special ed students are benefiting big time. Our ELL students are not. Um, the charters have a lot to do on uh, that side of things. And ELL, that's English language, English language learners. Uh, so, I mean, it was a bit of humble pie for you know, us, for me personally, um, but I think you need to know that so that in the future you can think about, okay, if you're gonna, if you're gonna be allocating more resources, um, what are you looking for? Well, I need to know, are you able to serve um, students who are English language learners well? Because uh, that's an area where there's been a shortfall Um, And maybe that's an area where we need to try to do some innovative things. I'm just giving one example. But I do believe in data. I've never, you know, the world of philanthropy and the world of business, the world of government, I've been in all of them. I've never seen a situation where you just give money out and wish people well and hope it goes well. Um, If you're taking uh, public dollars or even philanthropic dollars, um, there should be some expectation. We want to see how um, the students are doing as a result of those dollars. I I think I would hope to see if there are other bills, and I don't know if there are or not, that there is some level of accountability if you're um, taking public taxpayer dollars. You have to have some evidence of success with what you do with those dollars. And I think we all care about our kids at a minimum being able to do basic Um, mathematics and being able to read. I mean, I'd like to get more sophisticated than that, but let's start there.
0: Um, Let's shift gears a little bit away from Idaho and talk a little bit more about your background, Terry. Sure. Uh, You referenced a little bit earlier in the interview, you spent some time in Ohio, you were recruited to Bloom to run Bloom by the Catherine Albertsons Foundation. Uh, Tell me about your background and
1: tell me about how you've seen school choice change in the time you've been in the arena. So, My educational background begins in in Europe, actually in Poland in the early 1990s. It's funny to say that now with everything going on in that part of the world, but um, at that time, Poland was transitioning out of communism and they wanted to bring in um, young Americans to uh, not only help them with English, but to demonstrate what's it mean to be free? What's it look like? Um, And uh, so I was in international education from the early 1990s through 2001. Uh, And it was interesting because I saw a lot of interesting things that uh, European countries do when it comes to education. I don't think most people know this. There's a lot of choice in in places like the United Kingdom and the Netherlands um, where public dollars can go to private schools. But now they all take one assessment. Um, it's really interesting, and, and it's not going to happen in the United States, where you have one assessment. Um, you get the money. There's one assessment. We want to see how everybody's doing under that one assessment. I don't care if you're a religious school or. Um, that's that's how they do it in parts of Europe, in the United States with local control and that sort of thing. You could never do that, um, but I ended up in. Uh, I ended up in Ohio after September 11th. I was going to move my family to um, the United Kingdom. September 11th happened. I had two very young daughters. My, my, Pol- my Polish wife was not yet an American citizen. The idea of packing up and going at that time was, was scary. Sure. Uh, because I didn't know if, if we'd even get back in the, in the country with my wife, right? Um, I probably was exaggerating at the time, but that's how it felt. Uh, and so I had a friend, uh, national educator, Chester E. Finn, um, checker, uh, we called him. He said, I got this opportunity in Ohio. Maybe you'd be interested in that. So I went to Dayton, Ohio, and uh, at that time, um, Ohio was a hotbed of, of the charter school law and trying to grow a charter school sector. Um, we also had voucher programs um, uh, that were emerging and evolving, and so you had Catholic schools. Now it was interesting because the voucher programs there were targeted, as we talked earlier, to the neediest kids, but you also had a lot of the Catholic schools that had been there for 100, 120 years, half empty because the the families that used to send their kids had have just gotten so much smaller. Catholic families in the Midwest, you know, in the, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, you'd have five, six, seven kids. They're now down to two or three, um, and they weren't living in the inner city. They were living out in the suburbs. So you had um, these Catholic school buildings that were, um, and, and other denominations, sitting half empty. And so, okay, I, as a parent, I can use a voucher, take my child to a, a Catholic school. I believe I have the same um, Cultural beliefs. I have the same values. Um, I like the fact that um, there's a, a discipline there that, that they might have or whatever. Sure. Um, so the, the school choice was very prevalent in Ohio. Uh, but quite frankly, we also had a, a mixed um, collection of results uh, and scandal. I mean, you had charter school leaders that would start schools. Money would disappear. Um, people would go to jail. I mean, I saw that stuff up close and personal. Um, and you also saw some great schools emerge and that's what happens when you open up the gates of innovation, you're going to get some things that work and you'll get some things that don't work. And that's why I think it's really important that, um, you keep your eye and I, and this, I mean, like the, the state pays attention to what's working and what's not working.
0: That bell curve you talked about Exactly.
1: Earlier. Right. I mean, it's just real in every human endeavor. Oh yeah. Um, and so I, I got to really live up close and personal Um, We were a charter school authorizer, meaning we are the ones that were responsible for giving birth to schools and uh, holding them accountable and that sort of thing. I was also on the board of a group called School Choice Ohio, so we were the voucher program um, school. We were involved in many of those battles and those struggles. Um, I'll tell you in public policy, my experience, you never get it right, ever, the first time. And you see that in Idaho's public charter school program. Every year there's tweaks to Idaho's public charter school law. There's a few so, bills going through. Exactly, right? Now. <laughs> right? And um, some of them are good. Maybe there'll be more money for facilities. Some of them for flexibility. Some of them are a reaction to something that didn't go well. Um, and so they need a little more you know, protection. I mean, I think the education savings on whatever, if something gets through the legislative process this year, They're going to be revisiting it year after year after year and trying to improve it and make it better, probably make it, I I hope, more open. I mean, the thing that I saw about Senate Bill 1038 that also sort of bothered me is it's not targeted to the neediest students. And I come from that generation of... No child left behind. The idea was we need to improve schools because our gaps between our most successful students and our students that are behind are expanding the achievement gap. Mm -hmm. Well, that's still the case. It hasn't gone away. We've just kind of moved on politically. But the fact of the matter is the greatest challenge that we face in the United States is uh, the education um, of our needier students who aren't fortunate enough to, uh, you know, my parents sent me to a catholic school um my parents are celebrating their 68th anniversary this year um and i was very fortunate to grow up in an intact family where education really mattered and uh that sort of thing um but there are there are children who aren't that fortunate and they grow up with a lot less and i want them to get the best opportunity that they can get and i think we in this state need to remind ourselves of the fact that those low test scores actually mean that we've got a lot of kids who are struggling and aren't prepared and not really being given the best chance that they can be given to be successful in life. And I think that's what education's all about. That's That's what really good educators would tell you. I'll use whatever tool in the toolbox you got if it makes a difference so that we can elevate the performance of all our students Um, So I'd like to see more emphasis on how do we make sure that whatever choices we're providing actually benefit all of our students. It's been a challenge in the charter sector and I know by the way. I mean, early on the charter school sector, um, just the way it was set up was really middle class parents saying, you know, I want this choice for my kid, I want this model and God bless them, the gumption and the desire to get it done. And they didn't have the grant support that schools have now. Um, when I say grant support, I'm talking two, two point five million dollars to help launch a school. Well, if you're doing that, you also want them to have a kitchen so that they can have free and reduced price lunch available for students. You want them to be able to get buses so that they can transport kids that can't get there otherwise. And we've made a concerted effort to actually try to do that. And you're starting to see that shift in our charter schools. If you look at like the demographics and that sort of thing over the last seven, eight years, you're starting to see the demographics of the schools are becoming a lot more like what Idaho is. And and if it's in Caldwell, it's a lot more like Caldwell. Um, with a lot more needier kids, a lot more kids who are speaking maybe English as a second language, that sort of thing. So um, I hope I answered your question. <laughs> you got me talking.
0: No, that was a, a really great overview of just how how much things have changed and how... Um, it, it almost feels like there's a newer push for school choice in the last year or two. Do you, do you think that's a fair assessment? Yeah, that's a fair assessment. And where, fair. where's that energy coming from?
1: Uh, I was just in Montana um, yesterday. They were having a big debate around, they still don't have a charter school law. They're one of like five states in America that don't have a charter school law. Uh, and they invited me to come talk about what's going on in Idaho. You guys have been doing it for 25 years. Um, and so what's going on is that you've got a lot of For the longest time, school reform was something, and I talked about this, all right, but it was something that that you needed to do for the needier kids and the needier families, um, because they're really behind and we need to help catch them up.
0: Sure. When When I talked to Governor Little at the beginning of the session, he said in other states, it's been an instance where public schools have failed and collapsed, so you need something to replace them. Yes. And he's told me that that is not the case here in Idaho. It's
1: not the case in Idaho. He's right. Uh, and it, Idaho has been fortunate in that regard. You don't have the you don't have the concentrated poverty. now. you got poverty in Idaho, but it's not concentrated like it is in a Cleveland or in a Dayton or in a Chicago or go down you know Oakland, um, where it's block after block of just desperation, destitute, poverty, and violence. Fortunately, in Idaho, that's why a lot of people are coming to Idaho, though, you know, Um, you just don't have that level of concentrated poverty. I know you have gang violence, you have things going on in places like Nampa and Caldwell, no doubt about it. But it's at a different level of sort of reality. Um, But you do have a lot of middle class angst. I mean, look, and rightfully so. I think the pandemic really um, kind of exposed also that, um, you know, this this idea, this American idea that you could uh, go to school, you know, pay attention, study, get out, get a nice job, make it in the world. Uh, I think a lot of middle class families are worried that's not necessarily going to be what's going to be there for their children. Um, And so there is angst. And I think you saw Uh, during the pandemic, I think parents started to get deeper into what their kids were learning and they were like, this isn't really what my kid needs to know. Or what kind of math is this? If I can't sit down and help my kid do math, is it really, does that make sense? So there are a lot of questions that have emerged, um, I think connected to sort of economic angst, the results of the pandemic, just more awareness of things that are going on. I actually think there's, there's the potential for this to be a really good time if um, policymakers and others um, are thoughtful and react, uh, not just in a ideological way, but in a thoughtful way. This is why the data is important. I'm gonna come back to data. This is why, listen, if you're gonna open space up for innovation and new opportunities, which I think is totally appropriate to do right now, you need to have ways of measuring whether or not what you're creating works or not. Taxpayers have that right. They need to know that their money is hopefully going to something that's making a difference. So um, that's uh, there's a lot going on here. And then you've got hyped up. Um, there's political advantages. There's red meat sort of um, uh, conservative politics involved in this. Uh, and um, you're, you're seeing that play out in, in Idaho for sure. You're seeing it. I have a daughter down in Texas. Uh, she and I have conversations. She's in education. All, it's fascinating, a lot of the same ideas and issues that pop up in a Texas, pops up in an Idaho, pops up in a Utah Education Savings Council, a beautiful example of that. I mean, it's something that's been debated and discussed, but never went anywhere. This year, boom, you've got Iowa, you've got Kentucky, you've got Utah, potentially Idaho. Um, so there, there's also a national political energy Um, that's driven by social media, driven by Fox TV, you know, you got the same thing on the left too. Um, But uh, it's just an interesting time. All these forces are are coming together uh, and there's opportunity in it. Um, There's danger in it as well, you know, but that's just the nature of these things.
0: Sure, but with some more accountability and data reporting and all those things, are you optimistic that an ESA type program would, would yield good
1: results for students? I think given time, it will. Absolutely. I don't think it's going to come right out of the gate. I mean, these things are messy. People need to understand that. There's, there's stuck in it. I have it, but I don't know where to go, so I'm not stuck in the school. I think we need to be careful here about how we do this. And I'm talking about now as a proponent of more school choice. Mm-hmm. Um, I always believe that it's better to um, under-promise and over-deliver. And uh, so if we're going to promise that, hey, we're going to we're going to be able to create new supply, um, I think you need to be realistic. There are challenges associated with that. And our state isn't like Ohio, where we talked about where you got, you know, private schools that are half empty um, because of the demographic changes and that sort of thing. Um, here, most of our schools are bursting at the seams, certainly where the vast populations are. Then you got rural, where there are realities of, well, what kind of choice are you going to create there? I believe there are choices that can emerge. I believe there are things that can, but it's not going to happen overnight. Um, these are things that are going to take time to happen. Uh, so you may very well have parents who've gotten themselves an education savings account, uh, don't have anywhere to spend it.
0: You want to make sure that that capacity is on the Exactly.
1: I think we should at least be thinking about that. Um, and talking about that, which is you're helping us do, I hope, Logan. But it's it's not just it's not like magic where you just all of a sudden there's now money now you know markets do work, but they take time, uh, and it may take more actually. I think, and you know, I've talked to some of the private school people, and they say, well, listen, if we if we can get those resources, then we can go, we can do fundraising, and we can do kind of what we've done in the charter school space, they can do in the private school space, and heck, I wouldn't mind if we were involved in that but just it's going to take time you know not months but years to build new capacity um and you want to build on what works so you want to learn from what it is that is currently going on and build on that um so these kinds of things that's there's the politics and the philosophy and the ideology and all the good fights that go on at the legislature um, that are important and can open door for opportunities but this work of actually creating new opportunities for families and for children is hard. Um,
0: for a frame of reference, yeah. when you guys at Bloom are helping
1: start up a brand new charter school, what's that time frame look like? Two to three years. I mean, it depends on, it depends on whether or not there's a facility available. It's like, say a school district comes and says, Hey, you know, we've got a facility, uh, and then we would say two years to you got to develop the talent to actually lead the school. Then you got to like develop the model for the school, even if you've got a like the Barney Charter School initiative out of Hillsdale is a model. We've now got models here, there are STEM models. Um, even if you have that, you're still looking the two years for us is a really quick opening. Three years is more like it. It's usually a a negative one year, zero year or one year is how we think about it. Um, But for new school capacity, you're talking at least two years, probably three years downstream.
0: Sure. And part of the promise of an ESA is it's not necessarily you know, unlike a voucher, it's not a one-to-one, ESA turns into a school seat. It could be used to purchase homeschool materials, it could be used for tuition, it could be used for any number of things, really.
1: It could, you know, we've been doing some, Uh, research on um, what was called strong families, strong students, um, empowering parents, I think is the most recent version of it, the governors, uh, and trying to understand um, what parents actually did with those dollars, Uh, and that's a smaller dollar amount, Um, but uh, they usually focused on, there were some that would like develop, let's talk about like a a package of opportunities for their kids, Um, but most would want one thing, uh, and it'll be interesting to see. I mean, wh- how many parents are going to want to put together kind of a package where you know what, Ali, you're going to be home with me for three hours and. We're gonna um, uh, we're gonna use Khan Academy, and we're gonna focus on mathematics and science. And then you're gonna go to music school at Boise Rock from 11 to making this up. And mm-hmm. then um, after that, you're gonna go and there's gonna be uh, ballet lessons that we're able to get you. I mean, it's a lot. of, Being a parent is hard, all right. I mean, and then I've all done the kids it. in the neighborhood exactly. come now over I'm in the afternoon start putting for things together. Teacher. My kids, I'm gonna start putting together a package of learning opportunities for my children. Now, hey. There are families out there that can do it, and will do it, and there's some absolutely amazing mothers in this state. I've met them, um, and I have no doubt they will do some amazing things, and, and I think that's awesome. And I think if you can create opportunities for do, for doing it, you should. But there're going to be a lot of others who have jobs who aren't able to do that, and they're just going to say, you know, I just want a great school for my kid. Yeah, I, I believe in. Um, I, I'm making this up, but look, you know, I'm Catholic. I want my kid to go to a Catholic school. They have the same values as I. Uh, that's, where, that's where my children are gonna go and I trust them. Look, the parents have skin in the game at that point. they made a, a proactive decision. I think that's better for the families. I think that's better for the schools. Um, and if you can help incent that, that's a good thing. I just think we need to be realistic that these changes are gonna be kinda messy. Um, You certainly should have data so you can kind of track what's really working and what's not. And it's going to take time. And there's going to be changes to law along the way as you learn, that's just the nature of this.
0: Absolutely. All right. Bloom CEO Terry Ryan, thanks so much for joining us this week. Thank you, Logan. I hope that was useful for you. It was. Excellent. (laughs) Thank you. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.
1: Hi, I'm Marcia Franklin, the producer and host of Dialogue. For more than 25 years, we've been bringing you conversations that matter. More than 150 of those conversations are with writers, and now you can take them with you wherever you go, while you're walking, around the house, or in the car. Just search for Dialogue with Marsha Franklin on Apple Podcasts and other podcast platforms, and remember to subscribe so that new shows download automatically. Enjoy.